Welcome back to another episode of On the Vanguard, where we have conversations with and about women and non-binary Black and Indigenous folks in STEM. Mm -hmm. I'm your host, Dr. Anika Harriet, and today I am once again joined by Dr. Ariana Long. Yeah, today we're going to be getting into all of the topics around AI, and more specifically, bias in AI. Yeah, yeah. I think it's really interesting. So many people are so excited about all the things AI can do for us, which is true. There are some things, but there's a lot of things that it does wrong for us, right? That doesn't, it doesn't quite capture. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, really reflecting on how AI is a product of human development means that it's wrapped up in our own biases. Yeah, absolutely. And we're all about acknowledging what those biases are here at Vanguard STEM. We don't pretend that science is objective. Oh, no. We call it. We call it like we see it. <laughs> Absolutely, we do. So we always start off with sort of like general topics. So we're going to start off with maybe orienting around what are the ways that we've all kind of been seeing AI in pop culture and in the media lately. So are there some things with AI that you've seen recently? Yeah, yeah. I guess I'll start off with some kind of smaller, easier examples for sure. Um, so some of the first things that come to mind is, you know, generating images of things that maybe we've only read about. So feeding these descriptions into AI, um, uh, you know, bots, whatever you want to call them, and, and seeing the output. So people generating images of historical figures, which is really exciting. Mm -hmm. um, people regenerating old images, but maybe at a slightly newer definition, kind of this artistic um, angle, which we know has its own issues with intellectual property and things like that. Um, but it can be really helpful as a visualization tool. Yeah, yeah. I definitely understand the, I guess, how, how tempting it is. You know, we're, I feel, I feel very hesitant to just pick up the first AI tool I see and just like dive uh, right into it. But especially with those image generators, I yeah. think as someone who is not very artistic, like, thank God I can even hold a pencil. <laughs> Um, that that idea of being able to visualize something in your head and actually see it in front of you is really tantalizing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and somehow, despite recognizing how cool and um, impactful it is to be able to do that mm -hmm. um, and allowing that to maybe uh, create a greater appreciation for artists, mm -hmm. somehow we have been taking their art, stealing yeah, their art. going in the opposite direction. Yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah, valuing the work more uh, and the art and the people doing it less, perhaps. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it kind of reminds me, it's similar to that conversation that people have when they see art and they see that it's expensive. Mm -hmm. And they say, oh, well, my child could do that. And it's like, mm. well, really what's happening here is you're paying for the artist's training, their, their eye for color. And I think... AI, in a way, yes, it is tantalizing, it is helping us visualize things, but in the other way, it's almost a kind of downplaying the amount of effort and skill and knowledge and creativity and color theory and line theory that people really train um, and really learn and become experts in. And suddenly you have this machine that claims to do it all, which we know it doesn't. We know that there are errors. Um, We've all seen those weird hands. I was just thinking that, the six hands, yeah, the six fingers, yeah. And we know it's imperfect. Um, and, and yet, you know, we're watching it definitely start to take over these jobs, whether creative or 
automated uh, communications, things like that. Yeah, it's, you know, anything can be a tool, but whether or not we're ready for it and if it's in the right hands and sort of the ethics behind creating it, I think, are really the questions that we're, we're dealing with when it comes to these. Um, yeah. So I've also seen AI, oh, okay. Have you seen the music stuff that they've been doing with AI? No. They'll take, I've seen Rihanna singing Cuff It. Um, people will go write a verse and then put like a Drake vocal over it. Whoa. And so they're actually stripping voices, right? There's these artists who have such a, again, artists have such a large database essentially to pull from, yeah. to recreate. People are just writing songs and putting vocals on it and, yeah posting on social media for now, but um, I know that this is one of the big issues actually that I think is being talked about a little less with the writer's strike. Mm, right yeah. Um, and whether or not folks in the Screen Actors Guild are going to strike as well. Mm -hmm. um, so of course everyone has been talking about the writers and you know your AI can't write secession, which I, I don't watch, <laughs> but I doubt AI could watch, it could write any of the things I watch. Um, so that's, that's the big one, I think, that a lot of us are hearing. But maybe what's getting lost in that conversation is the same thing for actors, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, ooh, I cannot remember which specific actor it mm -hmm. was, a, a white man, mm -hmm. um, who was perfectly fine. He was like, yeah, AI can take all of my stuff. And essentially, it's like you won't have to pay the actor to come be in your commercial because they've done so much that you can sh strip their their face, their expressions, their voice, and essentially just put it into your commercial without ever having to bring in the actor. So where's the so, money go? Is there any money shuffled around? Not to the people who would be paid to actually show up and do that work. And so that's mm. the big issue yeah. is uh, actors' likenesses mm -hmm. being essentially drafted into these AI algorithms and right. replacing even the people acting on screen, not yeah. even just the writing. Yeah. Yeah, and this reminds me. I think I've. I think in this same vein, I've seen videos of famous politicians that have now been fabricated using stripped audio from all of their, you know, public-facing recordings and things like that. And you know, people messing around. Most of the time, it's silly yeah. having someone big and powerful say something really silly and small to make everybody laugh. But it's scary because they could be faked as saying something else that has much wider implications. And then we have the same issues that we come back to even before AI of people, uh, of what it means to have scientific literacy, what it means to check your sources. Mm -hmm. It becomes scarier and scarier. Yeah, because you you have a source that you would believe is reliable, but you don't even know if that source is really yeah. that source. That's right. There's that, um, who was it that was interviewed? We were talking about this on Twitter. The person who was interviewed or got an email for an yes. interview based on a false quote. Yes, so it was a journalist who was using ChatGPT to get some of their initial points for an article they were writing. Mm -hmm. They asked ChatGPT, I don't remember if they asked, they gave the name okay. and asked like, what are some things from this person that I might use in my article? Or if they simply asked like, who can I cite on what, like for this topic? Mm -hmm. And ChatGPT came back with a name, mm -hmm. it came back with a quote, and it came back with a citation for that quote, mm -hmm. which the journalist then took and reached out to the person who was cited and it was something like a quote from a book that this person wrote. Okay. The person responded and they were like, I don't know what you're talking about. I never wrote that book. Like I never said this. Exist? No. Oh my gosh. <laughs> just, just made it up. Wow. Wow. Absolutely. Yeah. 
Um, another one that I wanted to touch on, so we're talking about likenesses. Mm -hmm. And when you mentioned the politicians, it actually kind of jogged a memory for me, mm -hmm. which is that this is not a new thing. It's been on social media for quite some time, and we were calling it deep fakes. That's right. Before. Yeah. yeah, yeah and yeah. I have, I, your, your conversation made me realize I haven't heard anyone use that term in a minute. And I feel like this is exactly what's happening. And it's gotten worse, right? But we're not, we're not we're getting calling gaslit. it what it is. Are we being co-opted right now? <laughs> I, like, I thought those were called deep fakes. I yeah. thought we all knew that this one's very good bad. point. I haven't heard that, that word in a minute. Right? Yeah, yeah. And that's exactly, that's exactly what this is. That's fascinating. Yeah. Right? So even that language around it. But to that point, mm. one of the other ways that I've been seeing um, AI being used is in the fashion industry. Mm. And in some cases, it's, again, folks who are having ideas for designs that they're running through um, things like Midjourney and mm -hmm. other visualizers. Um, but now what it's begun to creep into is AI models, mm -hmm. right? So you can upload images of your designs and things like that and see what they look like on bodies. Mm -hmm. And folks are beginning to use AI as an alternative to actually hiring diverse models. Mm -hmm. So I think um, this is maybe a little deep um, postulation for very, so for so early in the episode, but I think that it's worth considering that no one was really concerned about AI and robots and all of these things when we assumed that they would be taking over the jobs of factory workers. Yeah, that's right. You know, mm -hmm. when we assumed that they would be taking over the jobs that no one wants to do, mm -hmm. quote unquote. Right, the help, the help desk workers, the chat people. Yeah. Yes, but now that we've come to a place where um, AI is is taking over these jobs that people are paid well to do, mm -hmm. now it's become a major concern within our culture, and I feel like that's worth calling out for what it is. You know. I agree. I think if we're gonna keep going down the the darker side of AI. It's funny because when I was doing some research for this episode um, and I was looking at some of the earliest uses of AI, some of it was for science, but actually some of the earliest uses were for policing. Yeah. Uh, so again, it kind of begs the question, and these practices were really, really uh, not well thought out um, because they were seen as a way to uh, cut costs. Yeah. And so even the AI itself, the way it was built to help with policing, was built in kind of a, a shoddy, quick way mm -hmm. that didn't take into all the systemic biases in the data that the AI was being trained on. Yeah. And so even these first early forms of AI were proven mm -hmm. to not be effective. I think there's a study on policing in, in London, and they were using uh, visual um, learning in AI to try to identify potential suspects for crimes that were committed. And out of 104, I believe, new suspects, um, only two were actually the real suspects in that were in question. Wow. Yeah, less than 1%, or roughly about 1%, um, 2% uh, accuracy there. And that was, again, that was, in, that was in, I think I said 2017, but some of the earlier ones were in 2010. And again, I don't ever remember hearing about this. Yeah, It absolutely. wasn't a big topic. Mm -hmm. And I've definitely seen those same studies and in particular, that it is least accurate for black women, right? Mm -hmm. So if we're talking about how those um, algorithms then get incorporated into policing practices, mm -hmm. isn't it just new age stop and frisk? 
straight up and they feed in data. So some of them are, yes, some of them are looking for the faces of people that they think committed a crime. And so then you have issues of AI not being actually trained on being able to distinguish black and brown faces from one another. So you have the wrong people being pulled in, harm being done certainly while they're under questioning, maybe even coerced. But then the other thing that's interesting is some cities, I believe maybe it was Chicago, um, used it for predictive modeling, predictive crime, mm. which is a whole mm. other, is different. Yeah, that's different, right? And of course the data that's fed in there is regional crime data. And so it reinforces this narrative that these areas are hotspots and therefore are gonna get more police and it's gonna continue reinforcing that trend. And then more policing is gonna happen. It's gonna be more stop and frisk and unnecessary policing. Yeah, so, I mean, we there are so many different levels to this. It's the fact that there's inherent bias in the way that you do things because you are a biased individual, right? And so that AI is no, um, is no um, caveat to that rule, mm -hmm. truly. So you talked a little bit about how AI is sort of reinforcing these stereotypes when it comes to policing. There was another thing that I found, even in just these visualizers. So I saw one particular instance where you could type in European people at work mm -hmm. and get an image generated. And it was a group of white folks, I believe two men and then a woman or um, you know, two mask presenting and a femme presenting person. They were in suits in like a nice office and there was a window behind them, you know, European city overlook. Mm -hmm. You type in African people at work mm. and the same visualizer would give you images of people rustling through large burlap sacks on dirt floors, you know, mm -hmm. t-shirt and jeans at best, no shoes. And it's like, we're- Enforcing yes, those stereotypes. Yes, absolutely. And I think that it's such a, such a, um, a clear instance of how our biases are reinforced in the tech that we create. Mm -hmm. um, without any, like, it pulls the mask off, right? Yeah, yeah. We, we type the same words in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The only thing that should be different is the location, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. um, and maybe the look of the folks. Yeah, perhaps, sure. Perhaps. I'll take a different pattern of clothing. Give me some more color. Right. <laughs> you know? You know, get the melanin popping. Yeah, some good hair going on, like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and so that also reminds me of something that I saw in real time on mm. social media years ago. Mm -hmm. um, so we talk about AI, we're talking about any sort of system that is computer-based. They're usually built to model human intelligence, which mm -hmm. is, mm -hmm. so, you know, maybe, maybe the AI is working. pretty accurate. It's, it's working. working. <laughs> um, they're used to model human intelligence, and they're these computerized systems that are able to make decisions. Mm -hmm. They're following some logical path, some if-then um, and, and making an adaptive decision. Okay. And so in this particular instance, what someone did was they took a very long image, long um, and narrow image, and on one side they had a white politician, mm. and then they took that same long, narrow image, and on the other side they had a picture of Obama. Mm -hmm. And it was a small, just portrait, imposed with a bunch of white space at either end. Okay. And they tweeted it. And so if you don't know, Twitter has like an uh, automatic cropping. Cropping, yeah. And it, so it had Obama on top, I think, and then a bunch of white space above, Obama, white space below, white, white politician, 
more white space. Okay. And they, they tried several, several iterations of this, and it always cropped the image to the white politician. Fascinating. I did not know this. Yes. And then they even tried it wow. with a whitened image of Obama. <laughs> but his features were still deemed black yes. enough. That's wild. So this is like kind of bringing in AI to how it perpetuates things on social media. Yeah. Right. So we have issues with AI and, and crime and, and law enforcement. Um, we, I definitely want to talk about the medical component, but I think the social media component is really critical because... When I think of social media algorithms, some are definitely better than others. Absolutely. Can we talk about TikTok for a minute? When people tell me their TikTok is shows them, you know, young teens just dancing and other stupid things, I'm like, that's your algorithm. That's you trained you. it that way. Yeah, yeah you did that. You did that. So I love me a TikTok algorithm. But in general, when I go on Twitter nowadays and Facebook nowadays, a lot of it is so polarized mm -hmm. and a lot of violence and a lot of trauma. And we know, I think you were looking up some, we were talking about a paper recently that explored some of this trauma, right? Yeah, so this paper was showing that, and they were building from an initial finding that black girls are the most likely group to be on social media. Okay. But they're also the most likely to uh, come across some form of racial or racialized trauma mm -hmm. on social media. Mm -hmm. Um, and specifically, not that they were seeking these things out, but that the social media algorithms are more likely to feed this content. And what we're talking about is like videos of police killings. Mm -hmm. You know, those videos that some folks I'm sure share in perhaps a more lighthearted sense of like, oh, this Karen harming someone, right. essentially. Yeah. Um, and that those, those videos are more likely to be fed to black girls. Mm -hmm. And I want to emphasize black girls, yeah. not black women, yeah. black girls, yeah. children, right, are the ones who are being fed this content disproportionately. Yeah, and I think, I think there was a, a co-finding in there that uh, the, the strength of that, um, those occurrence rates also correlated with higher rates of anxiety and depression and mental illness in general in black girls. And it was because, and the black girls themselves were using words like trauma, PTSD, nightmares, yeah. and things like that. And it's, it's wild because it kind of, I feel like it's a perfect example of where people would tout AI saying, well, it's giving more visibility mm -hmm. to, you know, police brutality and violence. But at the end of the day, it's not for the cause. Right. It's for the clicks. Yeah, right? Yeah. It's it's giving more visibility, but not to the people who need to see it, yeah. right? Yeah. It's giving we it, it's showing it right back yeah. to the people who are most aware, mm -hmm. most affected, mm -hmm. right? So it's not ser it's not even serving the purpose that folks sort of defend it in, right. in serving, yeah. Yeah, yeah, we don't need to see it. Y'all need to see it. I know it's real. <laughs> Very well aware <laughs> yes, of what's going on well in the street. I mean, I've had to mute, I'm sure you have too, I've muted words, which also pains me, to go and mute the name of someone that looks like me, yeah. but knowing that I just can't, I can't handle it, because I'm expected to also show up at work. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so this, the, algo the algorithm can be a blessing and a curse, mm -hmm. and it can cause so much detriment to your health. Yeah. Related to your health, I think we've talked a little bit about mental illness through a lot of these podcasts. Mm -hmm. We've talked a little bit in, about disparities with black birth givers and black people and people of color in health systems, how we're not believed and things like that. One of the things that I think is really interesting that I know AI is being applied to a lot of data, and maybe we could talk about our research a little bit after this, 
um, but it's being applied and it's helping um, in some areas of science for sure. But it's also again being used in that kind of how can we, that kind of direction of where companies and, and banks and hospitals are asking how can we do this quickly, cheaply, and more effectively. Companies, banks, and hospitals, you said like, <laughs> mm. Like the three, what do they call them? Deadly horsemen or whatever? <laughs> yes, like, oof. Yes. Profits, profits, profits. Exactly. And literally that. So how can we, you know, farm out essentially this decision making in a way to, so it's easier for us, less labor, et cetera. And one of those ways is through medical, um, medical funds disbursements, so loans, mm -hmm. things like that. And hospitals were rolling out this software using an AI algorithm to decide which patients um, get how much money in medical support. Exactly. <laughs> and with that sigh, that sigh hit me. And the thing that was so fascinating, I mean, we all know where it's going. They used prior patient data to train the, because that's what you have. You have that prior data. So you're going to train the AI and you're not, because you want to do it quickly and cheaply, you're not going to spend the time, the very intentional time and effort that needs to go in to actually looking for some of the biases that are in your data set. And so what was happening is systemically or systematically black patients were underfunded when it came to medical funds. And it was because black people spend less money in the early stages of diagnosis because we're often late diagnosed because no one believes us. And so when you're charting a medical history of a white patient versus a black patient with the same diagnosis, the black patient is getting diagnosed later, spending less money early on because it's just not, we're not quite sure, no one's believing us. And so as a result, you also end up getting less financial help for your medical uh, medical uh, needs. Wow. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah, I think that what people often tend to forget when these new AI tools are rolled out with some catchy phrase or, you know, this is going to solve whatever issue, mm -hmm. is that these algorithms don't exist in a vacuum, right? right. They're not only built by folks who are biased. And when we, when we talk about that bias, it's, it's so multifactorial, right? Because there is the bias that is racist, sexist, homophobic, trans, all the isms and phobias. Um, but those persist because of exactly why we're here with Vanguard STEM, because folks who look like us aren't the ones who are contributing to the science behind them mm -hmm. to even be able to call out like, hey, maybe this is not the best idea. <laughs> or if we're forced to use patient data to train this algorithm, perhaps we can come up with our algorithms that account for the disparities right. that exist, right? They're, just because we exist in a world where these problems are rampant mm -hmm. doesn't mean that we can't be a part of building the solutions, mm -hmm. right? They're just building simpler ways to do the same racism. Exactly, exactly. And it's so funny because I feel like AI and machine learning in general, there's always this like kind of pride in the fact that it's a it's a black box. You ever heard that? Like mm -hmm. we don't know. It, it does its own or self-organizing, self-training. It's a black box. And so therefore we just feed it data and see what comes out. And maybe we tweak some things, but like that's kind of it. But it, that just removes so much responsibility. I think it's just so lazy. Yeah. We can do machine learning, we can do AI with a lot more intentionality around it mm -hmm. and still achieve some semblance. And so just like you were saying, maybe maybe they don't need to go write their own algorithm from scratch. But 
I bet you if you had a, you know, a few black people in the room, they would have told you that your training set was uh, only white faces. Yeah. So I really actually um, forgot to bring up this point in our planning, but I did want to talk about it. And it is that specific point of the black box and maybe like demystifying it a little. So one of the earliest things I found in doing some research prep for this topic was just how racist the chat box things are. And mm-hmm. so for those who don't know, when you're talking about chat boxes, that includes like the chat GPT yeah. and GP3 and all of those things. And so um, the first article that I found, I think was from three years ago. And it was like, hey, turns out these things are super racist, <laughs> uh, super sexist. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember, I think the two prompts that were given, ooh, one of them I don't even want to repeat, mm-hmm. but an- another one was around uh, like, why are bunny rabbits so cute? And it turned it into this whole, like, sex-based female rabbits have these features, and if a female has these features, then they're more attractive, and that's why you think rabbits are cute. Whoa. Yeah. (laughs) I wonder, like, is there truth to that? I mean... (laughs) Like, Someone is it, must have said it. That's what I'm saying. Somewhere. It picked up some data somewhere. <laughs> so the, so a lot of the chat box, chat bots, you know, they're not pulling from what we might maybe call reliable sources, right. which is debatable to begin with. Right. They've, they've got the whole internet. Scraping. Exactly. And, and we know ugly things hide in dark corners on the internet. And there are many dark corners. I would, mm-hmm. I would, I would venture to say most corners of the internet most, because are they dark. go and kind of hide and do this thing in these dark corners. That's one of the only exactly. places they can. Yes. Yeah. And so the other one, I think they had typed in, uh, "What's the problem with this country?" Mm. And it was, of course, a predominantly black country. And the ChatGPT bot wrote back, or I think this was GP3, so I'll I'll, I'll speak um, accurately there. Mm-hmm. Um, wrote back like, "The problem is this country just shouldn't exist." <laughs> Oh, <laughs> it's like, well, that is an opinion, mm-hmm. not a fact for sure. Yeah. Um, and so these, this wasn't surprising to me. I'm not sure if you remember, there was like a Harvard study mm-hmm. where they had like an AI chat box that they launched on Twitter okay. and it took like 24 hours for the chat bot to become radicalized, racist and sexist. No, and God. it was just feeding off of what it was interacting with on Twitter. Mm-hmm. And they were like, oh, no, no, we got to shut this down immediately. Yeah. Um, and so that's what happened with this first, the first few rounds of what is now ChatGPT. But as I mentioned, this article was from three years ago. Mm-hmm. So now in 2023, the article comes out that's like, hate speech is mostly fixed, but guess why? Because they paid Kenyan workers $2 an hour mm-hmm. to teach the chat box hate speech or to identify hate speech and not say it. So Kenyan workers had to go and identify words that were harmful to them. Examples of hate speech Mm. and train the AI for a whole $2 an hour. That's a whole other ethical issue. Mm -hmm. Mm. Yeah. So there's bias at so many levels and stages Mm -hmm. Um, and inequity, Mm -hmm. you know, harmful practices. Yeah. Play here. Yeah. Yeah. Some of the more innocuous <laughs> forms of using AI. Um, I, can, I feel like I can say this uh, more with my chest because I'm an astronomer and while my work 100% impacts humanity, it is not as direct. It is usually through byproducts. Yeah, AI is not all bad. AI is not all bad. Yeah. Um, so I will say some 
kind of really awesome things going on in astronomy with AI right now. Right now we have all these amazing telescopes coming online. Yes. That just produce, I mean, I, there's a word, I think it's like exabytes. I don't even know how many gigabytes, terabytes that is, but just full sky images that would take, you know, thousands of full screen HD TVs to even see. Um, they're incredible and you're, we're getting millions and millions, if not billions of objects in the sky and all these images. And while we have some methods as astronomers through you know hundreds of years of practice to sort through them, it's really becoming kind of unfeasible, un like un physically large amounts of data for us to really handle at a human level. And so astronomers have become really, really brilliant um, and savvy at training AI in, in like two different ways, I would say, two primary channels. So one is just kind of taking what we already know training the AI on that, here's a picture of a galaxy. Yeah. Here's a million pictures of a million different kinds of galaxies. Can you go and find all the galaxies and categorize them? And that's really nice because a lot of us tend to study one kind of galaxy or another, mm -hmm. don't have the time to do all the things. Um, and so it can be really helpful in that kind of simple way. A really exciting, more breakthrough way that I think is something that is probably more applicable to most areas of science is a more predictive form of AI. Oftentimes in astronomy, we are limited to the amount of information we have on a certain object in the sky, whether it's the number of telescopes we have, how long it's up in the sky, is it too faint to be seen for a long period of time. Um, there's lots of different reasons. And some things in the local universe are very, very different. The local universe. The lo in our nearby neighborhood, um, so just in the galaxies nearby. Um, are very different than the first galaxies in the universe. But we're trying really hard to find analogs um, of, of distant early galaxies because we want to try to understand them at a, at a more detailed level. So if we can find local analogs of extreme objects in the early universe but here nearby, maybe we can like study them more to learn more about the first galaxies, stars, etc. And so what AI will, has been doing is been studying these kind of local analogs and actually oftentimes people are feeding in data from simulations, so full-on universe simulations from computers, feeding it to the AI, yeah. saying, hey, can you degrade this? Um, can you make it look like an image that we took with the telescope? And can you tell us what that would look like um, if we actually did measure it with the telescope? Yeah. Um, it kind of fills in the gaps. So that really famous supermassive black hole picture that came out a couple years ago, that's a really, really great example. So simulations were fed into an AI, and then we fed in the data that we had. And it said, okay, well, based on these simulations, and you have these, this data, but there's a couple gaps, based on these simulations, this is how that gap should be filled in. Mm -hmm. And that's how we got that beautiful picture. It still would have looked like that, just yeah. a little bit blurrier. Um, but AI has been really helpful in kind of more breakthrough theory and, and trying to find these more extreme and exciting objects in astronomy. Yeah, I'm, I definitely want to talk more about how AI is being used in, in our field. But that, that really uh, made me think about some interesting questions you may or may not be able to answer. I'm just... <laughs> We're going? Okay. The, the brain is churning. Um, so I wonder then, it seems like the capabilities of AI are so expand, literally telling us the secrets of the universe, mm -hmm. right? So the problems that we're facing that we've been discussing so far are not issues of the ability and capabilities right. of AI, right? Mm -hmm. So those are direct human problems, right? Mm -hmm. For how we're deploying it and how we're training it. And so I wonder then if astronomers can train AI to recognize galaxies and piece this information together, if uh, we can, maybe improve on some of these issues by having like community stakeholders or even mm. folks who are 
more well-versed in it. I, I, I could be wrong here, but I don't think the guy writing the algorithm for the police station <laughs> is doing anything as complicated as yeah, 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 teaching yeah. galaxies, yeah. you know? So this like uh, cross collaboration, I think, uh, might be a wonderful place where we can really see we can really affect change. Yeah, I think that's a really brilliant idea. I mean, I feel like oftentimes STEM can be so siloed. All different fields can be so siloed. But in reality, so many of the tools that we use are interdisciplinary. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a brilliant, brilliant point. I've seen machine learning and astronomy conferences. I think only like the second conference, international conference on that topic is happening this year. Um, and what's funny is I hear every once in a while, I hear an anecdote from a kind of senior scientist who's watched, you know, the rise of data science and astronomy. Yeah. And every once in a while, someone will say, well, I was actually just happened to be on campus and there is this mathematics conference or there was this mm -hmm. bioinformatics conference. And I stopped by and I saw that there was this tool that they were using yeah. and I could apply it. And that's how we had this breakthrough. Yeah. But I feel like if there's more concerted discussion, both on the breakthrough front, but also on accounting for bias and like translating these checks to different fields. Um, I feel like it could be really successful. Are we about to start a startup from here? Is that, <laughs> I that, mean, we really, I think that conversation of like community stakeholders as an alternative to our traditional policing models mm -hmm. is something that folks are right. really interested in. And I don't think it stops at that like physical level. I think that you know, if you can train an AI from, from patient data or from data for arrests or suspects, that those same people can train the AI like, okay, this is the data set that you were given. Mm -hmm. Here's why it might not be working out. Yeah. And the, those same um, algorithms can be built in to create more equitable systems. Yeah. It's funny that you say that because even in astronomy, there's already kind of something like that going on. So we have the Zooniverse project, mm -hmm. and it's where scientists apply to upload thousands of objects and citizens will come and categorize them and answer a series of questions that you pose to them about the object. You know, is this a spiral galaxy? What color is the center of this galaxy? Does it not quite fit the mold of what we're offering you? But the, the synergy of kind of, I feel like what you're talking about is you take that and sometimes people will run the AI first and then do the citizen part or vice versa. But you'll have that kind of wealth of information. And I feel like if we can get people invested in you know galaxies far far away that have no impact on them in theory we should be able to somehow get them invested in their communities yeah their local like, universe right exactly yes that's what we should call it the local universe project absolutely i'm Done. i'm in if you are <laughs> y'all didn't see this Those <laughs> this was... is our idea yeah, yeah if we see this pop up like we know where you With got this side system <laughs> yes um yeah <laughs> So you mentioned that there's lots of AI tools that can be used cross-disciplinary. That's something that I am really interested in um, as a person in my early career, getting into being a professor, teaching the babies. Mm -hmm. um, something that's really important to me is creating an accessible classroom environment. Okay, yeah. And I think that we can agree that the way that STEM is traditionally done and a lot of the values that are imposed upon um, scientists and folks in that training are kind of arbitrary. Yeah. Especially when it comes to things like memorization and, and just basically how our learning is done. Um, and that that can also be really exclusive to folks who are neurodivergent. Mm. So for me, one important thing has been finding use of these AI tools 
that can um, sort of accentuate the things that are going on in the classroom, make things easier for students without infringing on the skill sets that they're developing. So I love to use, um, I use Scholarcy, which is like an AI uh, tool that reads through papers. And mm -hmm. let me tell you, I put through ChatGPT and then I put through some of these other tools that are, okay. ChatGPT was giving me like fifth grade summaries okay. <laughs> of yeah. research papers. Whereas these, I think uh, are a great tool to teach students, okay, you read the research paper mm -hmm. and you summarize each section and then let's put it through this AI tool mm -hmm. and compare, right? Mm -hmm. You can teach in that way. But then also for me, um, I remember my PI, we would be in meetings and he like off the top of his head, so-and-so in the year this, yeah. you know, yeah. reported this. And I'm like, how do you even keep all of that up there? But some of these tools are, are great library resources for yourself, for folks who maybe don't have that particular kind of recall. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's a skill. Um, that's one tool that I use. I use Connected Papers. It's another mm. really great one, which helps to kind of unravel the history of discoveries that you might see okay. in a particular um, paper. It'll tell you all of the preceding research that led to that paper. And depending on when that was written, all of the things that have come from it since. Um, so those have been really useful tools for me in my writing um, and that I, you know, want to bring into the classroom space as well. Mm -hmm. So that's not all bad. No, yeah I've, yeah. I've seen, like, there was someone on Twitter who wrote a thread on how to use it to write an essay. I actually really liked it. And it was basically kind of just dumping everything that you know about a topic. So you do your own research, you take some notes, then you dump it into your own kind of flow and you maybe write way too much, you provide way too much detail, and then you start to ask ChatGPT to kind of par it down and organize for you and you check, you check after every step. And in that way, I've used it for things like that where I needed, I needed basically fifth grade level summaries. <laughs> and it was great for that. And I think that can really help cut things down, especially for people with perfectionism and things yeah. like that. It can be really, really wonderful to help me come up with email templates for common emails that I get. Um, it's helped me save time in that way, but again, I would never use it without checking. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So we've talked about some of the bad, some yeah. of the good, some of the useful, mm -hmm. maybe some innovations that we could see coming. Um, and so I kind of wanted to end, we've, we've kind of weighed some good and bad, well not end, but go into some of the policy, right? Mm. So again, these, these things aren't existing in a vacuum. And I think that folks are really starting to see both the benefit and the danger of AI, um, regardless of maybe what has caused them to sort of open their eyes to those. So I was just looking at a tweet earlier from Alondra Nelson, who was formerly one of the directors at the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy. And she was sharing that in the European Union, they just passed one of the most expansive bills on AI ever, um, and it's wild to say, like, ever, because it's, like, what's the historical, like... So early, like, I feel like... <laughs> right. Ever. Yeah. <laughs> We've got a long way to go. Exactly. Um, so three key points on this bill were bans of live facial recognition tech. Okay. The next was ban on scraping of biometric data. Mm, okay. And the third was uh, that... Any AI that is deployed has to undergo a pre-deployment risk assessment. I love that. I love that one. But I mean, I question what it is, but still. Yeah. So these are the three that came out initially for um, for 
AI in the European Union. Mm-hmm. Um, and we do not have any bills along those lines yet mm-hmm. in the United States. Yeah, well, it's really interesting because I, when I was doing research for this art, uh, for this podcast, some, some folks had kind of called attention to that, how the White House, the current White House, Biden's presidency made this whole huge commitment to DEI, mm-hmm. but n- not a word about AI has come out and we're watching it over and over in different circles kind of perpetuate and make things worse. People are using it for hiring practices now. Mm, yes, yeah, we talked about HR yes. earlier. Human. Hu- human. Human resources. resources. <laughs> artificial intelligence. <laughs> yes. The math is a math thing. Um, but to your point, there is um, a guideline mm-hmm. that the White House Office of Science and Technology okay. Policy, so the folks who are like, this is how you no. do the DEI yeah. work, <laughs> yeah. um, they did uh, submit a list of recommendations. So I'm going to read off some of those and like the definition we can talk about a little. So the first one is they recommend that there should be an assurance of safe and effective systems, and that says you should be protected from unsafe or ineffective systems. Um, basically, that automated systems should be developed within consultation of diverse communities. Yes. Okay. So that was their first tenant. Okay. Next, they have algorithmic discrimination protections mm. listed. So you should not face discrimination by algorithms and systems. They should be used and designed in an equitable way. Mm. I le- So the thing I'm seeing with these are, I know they're just recommendations, so it's hard to give out specifics, mm-hmm. but I feel like there's like the argument about how they're used in an equitable way is really interesting. Could be, could be interpreted. Yeah, right, because I think that that really requires that you put them in the hands of the communities, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Because those are the folks who can decide what is serving them. Yeah. Is yeah. this fair to our community and how we move through these spaces? Yeah, that reminds me also of a, a book I know that we both wanted to mention, which was Algorithms of Oppression by mm-hmm. Sophia Noble and sort of the impact that that book had on how I perceive a lot of these things that I interact with on a regular basis and understand their development. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's women's winter. That's what I'm always thinking about in the summer, women's winter. <laughs> yeah, oh my goodness. So the next tenant that they have is on data privacy, and it says you should be protected from abusive data practices via built-in protections, and you should have agency over how uh, data about you is used. This mm, reminds me of the genetic sovereignty discussion. Yeah, exactly. So it's really similar. And in the genetic uh, sovereignty episode, which I'm not sure if this is going to come out before or after that one, so preview in case or like a little recap if not, what we talked about specifically around um, why it's such a big issue was exactly that, is that it's not just a mouth swab and you're good, like that is your data and Mm -hmm. that data is being recognized as like a greater resource Mm -hmm. in the context of our society. Money is being made off of our data. Yeah. Yeah. That data privacy um, point is really interesting to me because I'm not sure if you heard about or read anything about the proposed TikTok ban and what all all that entailed. Mm -hmm. So I feel like um, that falls really outside of like your own data sovereignty, right? Mm -hmm. Like the whole point of a lot of what was being introduced in that act was for the government to be able to monitor without your discretion, essentially, any of your internet. Exactly. Uh, uh, It was hidden underneath the TikTok title, but really it was about that. And so many people were not aware of that. And so many people were so focused on the, which they did, they did a great job of like the flashy, look over here, we're talking Mm -hmm. about the TikTok ban. But really at the end of the day, it was the right to really 
mine and watch all of your data. And that was the thing that scared me the most. Again, I love TikTok. <laughs> I'm being very clear here. Don't ban it, please. Peace. <laughs> Um, yeah, absolutely. And so I think this is the, there, there are two more tenants. So the, okay. the next one is something that also came up mm. in the genetic sovereignty. Interesting. We're all just uh -huh. places to mine data, apparently, uh -huh. which is notice and explanation. And it says you should know that an automated system is being used mm. and understand how it can, how and why it's being used to contribute to the outcomes that impact you. Yes. So this is kind of like informed consent. Yeah. Yeah. If I volunteer to this study, if you volunteered, if I volunteer to use my data, then fine. Exactly. But you should give me the opportunity to do so. Yeah, and this idea that there's a difference between informed consent, which is like, well, we told you we we're going to use your stuff, mm. versus confirmed consent, mm. which is, we're going to use your stuff, and this is how. Mm. Like, you're good with this right. thing. Right? Ethically speaking, this is cool with you. Right, like yeah. this specific thing. Yeah, because if you tell me if you're going to do, like, I fell prey to the... 23 and me like it was very exciting in the beginning I don't know much about my ancestry yeah. and you know I knew that they the thing that they said what they were going to do is you know genetic testing genetic studies mm -hmm. group studies things like that so okay yeah sure fine whatever but now I'm learning that they're selling the data and that mm -hmm. that data can be used to perpetuate certain stereotypes around medical histories and things like that, and I did not consent to those types of studies. Yes, and now Blackstone has purchased Ancestry. Yes. Oh, Blackstone, they own everything. They do, they do, including a bunch of people's genetic data now. Mm -hmm. um, so the last tenant here is human alternatives, consideration, and fallback. You should be able to opt out where appropriate and have access to a person Mm. who can quickly consider and remedy problems that you may encounter. I love that one. Yeah, so that HR thing, mm. <laughs> not going to fly. Not for me. No, yeah. let me talk to a human. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, so these are put forth by the White House um, OSTP, and I know that there are a lot of black women and women of color uh, that I know personally who are working in the OSTP. Okay. Um, so it's really great to see that those folks are putting forward these policy recommendations that reflect our concerns. Um, so I kind of wanted to end on maybe any other uh, women, non-binary, black and indigenous folks of color that we might want to mention. I've got a few. Um, so I Yeah, can... share them out. Cool. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I've got Dr. Tierra Tanksley. And so she actually was the person who um, does the research around what we were talking about earlier with the black girls um, okay. and social, social media, media algorithms. algorithms. Okay. So she researches algorithmic anti-blackness and racial trauma okay. specifically. So okay. lots of heavy stuff, but yeah. we need people like her doing this work. Yeah. I also have um, Engel Bush, who is the founder of Black Women in AI. Oh, I see them on Twitter. Yes, yeah. yes, I love that group. And then I also have Dr. I don't have the, her first name here, Dr. Dieng, D-I-E-N-G, okay. who is, um, uh, she's, she's at Princeton mm -hmm. as a part of the Google Brain Consortium. Mm. And she's also the founder of uh, an organization called The Africa I Know. So her research is all, again, around sort of this equity in the dispersion of AI and okay. how it's being used, what data sets and populations around that. And it's really incredible. And she she's at Google Brain. Yes, that's really she's impressive. At Brain. Wow. Yeah. So there are lots of folks. I think we're going to continue to engage. Mm -hmm. Folks can check out our written content, other um, audiovisual content to see more about these folks and others 
Yeah, for sure. Definitely look up all the things we mentioned. Do your own research. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I love to say that here we want to inform and mobilize our community to be able to advocate for themselves, mm -hmm. right? So take all of the information and make of it what you will, but use it to, to do something better. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. Use it to improve your community. Exactly. Yeah. All right, I think that's, that's all I got. That's all I got, too. All right, we'll see y'all next time. Thank you.